0: I really like Docketwise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, Docketwise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about Docketwise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. What a week! The circuits have reawoken with bombshells on material support of terrorism, family based particular social groups, the modified categorical approach, and more. Stand back and stand by. It's a heady episode. But before I get to all that, I'm happy to report that the state of Florida has accepted the CLE self certification from listeners. So if you'd like your own CLE certificate for 20 bucks, email me the 10 episodes you've listened to and the date you completed the 10th episode, and we'll send you the certificate and the materials. Also, I've got a long overdue shout-out for South Florida-based immigration attorney, Yuna Scott. From what I've seen and heard, Una is an excellent brief writer who loves a good BIA or circuit appeal. She's been one of the biggest supporters of the podcast, and she's even a patron of the show through our Patreon page. Details of how to become one yourself are in the show notes. Thank you, Yuna, for all your support. It means a lot. Now, here we go. First up this week, we're going to head to the Kurzban main office and go to the 11th Circuit in Hincapi Zapata, the U.S. Attorney General, published on October 13th, 2020. Pretty rough but not entirely unexpected decision on the material support of terrorism inadmissibility bar. Mr. Hencapi Zapata is from Colombia, and in 2001 owned a restaurant where he sometimes held political meetings for the Liberal Party. One day, members of the FARC demanded payments on threat of death. He paid them about 100 US dollars, but when they demanded monthly payments, he fled. Mr. Hankabe Zapata came to the U.S. as a visitor, overstayed his visa in fear of the FARC, and ended up marrying a U.S. citizen. Because he was lawfully admitted when he entered the U.S., he was eligible to adjust to lawful permanent resident, or LPR, status, and an immigration judge granted that relief in immigration court proceedings. The IJ rejected DHS's argument that the $100 Mr. Hankabe Zapata gave to the FARC under threat of his life made him ineligible to adjust status under INA Section 212A3BII and IVVI, also known as the Material Support of Terrorism bar. The IJ held that the Material Support bar didn't apply, because even though the U.S. has listed the FARC as a terrorist organization, the $100 payment was made under duress, and it was de minimis, meaning it was not significant. DHS appealed and the BIA reversed the IJ and the Eleventh Circuit affirmed the BIA. To understand why, a bit of legal background is important. In 2016, the BIA issued matter of MHZ, which held that there is no duress exception to the material support bar. And in 2018, the BIA issued matter of ACM, which held that there is no de minimis exception to the material support bar pretty much tanks Mr. Hinkapi Zapata's case unless the 11th Circuit decides not to follow those BIA decisions. But according to this 11th Circuit panel in the 2013 case Alturo v. U.S. Attorney General, the 11th Circuit also held that there is no duress exception. So, the 11th Circuit held in this case that Mr. Hinkapi Zapata's duress argument was foreclosed by all of this case law. As to whether the material support bar has a de minimis exception, the 11th Circuit said no, largely based on the text of the statute. Essentially, the 11th Circuit held that because the statute expressly includes providing, quote, funds, as a form of support of terrorism, and because the statute does not contain a limiting amount, any funds, including $100, will cut it under the statute. Mr. Nkapi Zapata, therefore, cannot become an LPR and will be removed. Here are some further observations. Kinda good and bad. Here's the kinda good. I could be reading this wrong, but it seems to me that the 11th Circuit is holding that while there is no de minimis exception for providing funds and other support when the support is specifically listed in the statute... And that includes stuff like providing funds, a safe house, weapons, and about 10 other things. The 11th Circuit seems to be saying here that there must be a de minimis exception if the support provided is not specifically listed by the statute. Quote, We can avoid rendering the statute's second use of material superfluous by reading the statute as requiring a materiality analysis only for other financial benefits, and not for the other enumerated examples, end quote. And as that quote makes clear, the conclusion is based squarely on the unambiguous text of the statute. Therefore, this case seems to support an argument that for non-enumerated activities that support a terrorist group, the material support bar only applies if the support is more than de minimis. What's more, the BIA's contrary holding in matter of ACM would not control, because again, the analysis is based on the statutory text, not on any ambiguity in the statute. Indeed, matter of ACM itself involved non-enumerated acts, Miss ACM cooked and cleaned for alleged terrorists under duress. So if I'm right here, this case can be used to challenge matter of ACM when the acts committed are de minimis and not specified by the statute here's the bad. The fact pattern in this case was likely a fairly common fact pattern for Colombian asylum seekers in the 1990s and 2000s, and thousands of Colombians probably received asylum over the last two decades based on similar extortion by the FARC. So I guess DHS and USCIS were just getting it wrong for not asserting the material support bar all these years? I shudder to think how USCIS might use a decision like this in the future should a Colombian national who obtained asylum due to extortion by the FARC and who then became an LPR applies to naturalize. And in fact, all practitioners with Colombian clients seeking to naturalize should probably prepare their clients for questions about any payments even done through extortion or under threat of death made to the FARC before your client came to the US because if your client answers in the affirmative at their USCIS interview, USCIS may take the position that your client was inadmissible at the time of adjustment of status, has therefore never been lawfully admitted for permanent residence, and is barred from naturalization and possibly removable. Yikes, y'all. And finally, shout out to the excellent attorneys on the case who I know personally, and who put up a hell of a fight with a lot of law against them. And that is Hencafe Zapata the U.S. Attorney General. Next, we have Hernandez-Cartagena v. Barr, published by the Fourth Circuit on October 14, 2020. This is a great case about family-based particular social groups and the nexus standard, and it also involves extortion. But, because the U.S. government hasn't yet listed the Maras in El Salvador as terrorists, it has a very different outcome than the 11th Circuit case we just discussed. Ms. Hernandez Cartagena is from El Salvador. Her parents left her for the U.S. in 2013 when she was 17. Two years later, an unidentified gang member began calling, texting, and threatening her that if her parents didn't pay the gang money, the gang would kill Ms. Hernandez Cartagena or her siblings in El Salvador. So, her parents started making payments to the gang, but the threats continued and the amount of extortion demanded kept increasing. When the parents stopped paying, gang members came to Miss Hernandez-Cartagena's home and, finding only her nine-year-old brother, cut him with a knife, saying that they did it so the parents would know that the gang wasn't, quote, fooling around, end quote. Having still not received payments, the gang later returned beat and raped Ms. Hernandez-Cartagena, and beat her brother, and then threatened to kill them all. Ms. Hernandez-Cartagena and the rest of the family fled to the U.S. in 2015 and applied for asylum. Ms. Hernandez-Cartagena claimed that she had suffered and feared persecution on account of the particular social group, quote, membership in the Hernandez-Cartagena family, end quote. The IJ and then the BIA denied asylum, primarily for her failure to establish a nexus between the harm suffered and the asserted particular social group of the family membership. Namely, the IJ and the BIA held that although the particular social group was viable, Ms. Hernandez Cartagena wasn't harmed on account of it, but rather merely for criminal monetary reasons, and that doesn't get you asylum. The Fourth Circuit disagreed it held that although monetary gain may have been one reason, the evidence and statements by the gang compelled the conclusion that at least one central reason of the various reasons for the harm Ms. Hernandez-Cartagena suffered and feared was on account of her family membership. This is enough. Remember it. And remember and use this great standard for nexus as well. Quote, The operative question is not whether petitioners' membership in the group is why the group was targeted. The question is whether petitioner's membership is a central reason why she and not some other person was targeted. I love it. The Fourth Circuit found that the evidence was so compelling that instead of remanding for further consideration, as circuits almost always do, it flat out granted asylum to Miss Hernandez Cartagena. Happy Monday. Here's a bit more on families and extortion, or as I like to call it, Thanksgiving dinner at the Gregg household. First, the Fourth Circuit states, quote, a nuclear family provides a prototypical example of the particular social group cognizable in our asylum framework, end quote. No citation to Attorney General Barr's matter of LEA II, but as longtime listeners of the show well know, I eagerly await the day a circuit takes the case on. Second, Whether extortion is merely criminal rather than a basis for asylum is a common debate in immigration court. Here, the Fourth Circuit takes a pretty unambiguous non-citizen-friendly stance. Extortion can constitute persecution, quote, even if the targeted individual will be physically harmed only upon failure to pay, end quote. And indeed, quote, the relevant analysis is not whether the applicant's family was persecuted because of a protected ground but rather whether the applicant himself was persecuted because of a protected ground. Excellently distilled 4th Circuit, this case is a necessary review for all extortion-based asylum arguments and, as it is of course based on many previous 4th Circuit cases, keeps the door wide open to extortion and family-based asylum arguments. Lastly, I can't help but find the outcome strange when compared to the 11th Circuit case we just discussed. According to these two cases, extortion gets a non-citizen asylum when the persecutor is MS-13, but extortion is terrorism when the persecutor is the FARC. To me, that seems like an incredibly absurd result that Congress could not have possibly intended. And that is Hernández Cartagena Bibar. Next, we go to the Third Circuit with Larios v. Attorney General of the U.S., published on October 14th, 2020. This is a case about the fan-favorite categorical approach. Here we go, guys. Mr. Larios applied for cancellation of removal for non-lawful permanent residents under INA Section 240A-B. And I.J. and then the BIA denied that relief because they found he was statutorily barred due to his conviction under New Jersey statute section 2C-12-3A, which criminalizes making terroristic threats. Lots of terrorism in this episode. The I.J. and then the BIA held that the conviction categorically, meaning in all instances, qualifies as a crime involving moral turpitude, or CIMT. And because CIMTs bar non-citizens from receiving non-LPR cancellation, the IJ and the BIA denied the relief. The case wound its way up to the Third Circuit three times. Three times! And in this last case, the Third Circuit conclusively reversed the BIA. Persistence pays off. Here's why. In 2006, Mr. Larios pled guilty to, quote, threatening to commit any crime of violence with the purpose to terrorize another or in reckless disregard of the risk of causing such terror, end quote, in violation of New Jersey statute section 2c12-3a. To determine whether this crime is a CIMT, courts apply the categorical approach, requiring a comparison of the elements of the New Jersey crime with the elements of a CIMT. If the New Jersey crime criminalizes more conduct than the federal CIMT definition, the crime is overbroad and cannot be a CIMT. That is, of course, unless the New Jersey crime is divisible. If the crime is divisible, meaning the crime contains alternative, separate elements that can each separately lead to a conviction under the statute, a court may proceed to the modified categorical approach look at the conviction documents, and determine what elements the non-citizen was actually convicted of. And usually that's not so good for the non-citizen. So, Mr. Larios and his threats. The BIA determined that the New Jersey statute is not divisible into separate crimes, and that the one crime New Jersey criminalizes is categorically a CIMT. The Third Circuit said, hold your horses. Looking to New Jersey state law, as the circuits often do to determine the elements of an offense, the Third Circuit held that while New Jersey always requires the same action, threats of violence, and always requires either intentional or reckless action, New Jersey treats as three separate crimes what those threats caused. That is, a jury in New Jersey must determine what separate event the threats intentionally or recklessly resulted in, or could have resulted in. The threats could be intended to 1. terrorize another, 2. cause an evacuation, or 3. cause serious public inconvenience. Because a jury must make a finding which of these three events occurred or were intended, those three events are separate elements of the offense, which in turn makes the statute divisible. Okay, so the statute is divisible. But divisibility is only important because, according to the Third Circuit, while threatening to commit a crime of violence with the intent to terrorize is a CIMT, threatening to commit a crime of violence in reckless disregard that it may terrorize another is not. This is so because the latter, reckless disregard, does not have a sufficiently culpable mental state to qualify as a CIMT. Now, in fairness, recklessness sometimes will qualify as a CIMT, but according to the Third Circuit, in this context, it does not, particularly because the crime does not require any aggravating factors that make the crime particularly heinous, even when reckless. And in this case, the conviction documents were unclear as to whether Mr. Larios had the intent or merely was reckless with his threats as such according to the third circuit the conviction is not a cimt and does not bar him from cancellation of removal so mr larios gets his shot to apply for non-lpr cancellation this is a complicated and detailed decision that all third circuit practitioners should read when making their categorical approach arguments here's some more good stuff first whether a non-citizen, rather than the government, will benefit from an ambiguous conviction record when the issue pertains to immigration relief is a complicated issue that I believe the Supreme Court will decide this coming term. The argument is as follows. Mr. Larios had the burden to establish his relief eligibility of cancellation of removal. So if the conviction documents, as is the case here, are unclear whether he committed a CIMT or not, he should fail to meet his burden. The counter-argument is that the CIMT issue and the categorical approach are questions of law, and if the judge can't determine whether a conviction is a CIMT as a matter of law, it must not be. The Third Circuit is agreeing with this latter view. Personally, so do I. The Supreme Court will soon decide. Second, important holding on the realistic probability test. In the Third Circuit, like the majority of circuits, courts must, quote, consider whether the least culpable conduct hypothetically necessary to sustain a conviction under the statute would also be covered by the federal statute, end quote. And when it comes to the realistic probability test in the Third Circuit, not only does the court believe the test, quote, inapplicable when assessing crimes of moral turpitude, end quote, but potentially applicable in other contexts only, quote, where the relevant elements for both the state statute and the generic offense are identical, quote. Lucky you, Third Circuit practitioners. Finally, I have not done the research, but I wonder how this case impacts the BIA's delicious decision earlier this year in matter of Salad, another CIMT, Terroristic Threat Decision. The Fourth Circuit does mention Salad in a footnote, but only to say that it rejects the BIA's application of the realistic probability test. An important holding in its own right, but it leaves addressing Salad for another day. I'll be here all night, folks. And that is Larios v. Attorney General, U.S. Finally, we arrive at the Ninth Circuit, first with Cortez Maldonado v. Barr, published on October 15, 2020. This is another in a long line of illicit trafficking in a controlled substance aggravated felony decisions from the Ninth Circuit, and it's a good one for non-citizens, with 17 footnotes. And it's another categorical approach case, so let's just cut to the chase. Mr. Cortez Maldonado is an LPR, and if his conviction, under Oregon statute section 475.8602A, is an aggravated felony, he's removable from the United States. To make this determination, the same categorical analysis that we just discussed applies. This time, the federal offense is illicit trafficking in a controlled substance under INA section 101A43B while the criminal offense, of course, is Oregon Statute 475.862A. The Oregon Statute has since changed, but at the time of conviction, the statute made it quote, unlawful for any person to deliver marijuana for consideration, end quote, which is fancy lawyer speak for receiving something in return. Now, the term deliver under Oregon law encompasses a lot of things, including solicitation, Which is like an attempted transfer of marijuana where the defendant has merely taken a substantial step towards delivering the marijuana, but doesn't actually do it. So the question in this case becomes, does the federal definition of illicit trafficking under INA Section 101A43B include Oregon's definition of solicitation? If not, the Oregon statute is broader than the federal removal offense, and Mr. Cortez Maldonado gets to keep his green card. And because I'm not a monster with that setup, the answer is yes, Mr. Cortez Maldonado gets to keep his green card. In the 1992 decision matter of Davis, and in later cases, the BIA held that the ambiguous immigration phrase, illicit trafficking, must involve, quote, a business or merchant nature, or the trading or dealing of goods, end quote, or a, quote, commercial transaction, end quote. Because the term illicit trafficking is ambiguous, the Ninth Circuit must defer to the BIA's reasonable definition, and the BIA's published cases interpreting it. According to the Ninth Circuit, this means under the BIA's definition that illicit trafficking quote, "requires the transfer or exchange of money or other consideration." End quote. But Oregon solicitation, and probably all solicitation, does not meet this definition because necessarily with solicitation the intended exchange has failed, or indeed may never really have begun. Now for what it's worth, the Ninth Circuit has also held that the illicit trafficking definition, quote, includes possession with the intent to sell, end quote. But that's not the same as solicitation, because solicitation is an inchoate crime, meaning it hasn't fully developed, or it's merely an attempt. Possession of drugs with intent to sell, on the other hand, is a fully developed crime in and of itself. And in fact, solicitation in Oregon doesn't require actual possession of any drugs at all. Quote, the minimum conduct needed for solicitation, words, and desire do not relate to commercial activity. End quote. So, because Oregon statute 475.860 covers solicitation, it's categorically broader than the federal generic definition of illicit trafficking of a controlled substance, and Mr. Cortez Maldonado is not removable as an aggravated felon. Quite the analytical case. Here's just a little bit more. At first blush, this decision may seem a bit technical and reach a bit of a strange result. But consider this, as the Ninth Circuit points out. Another aggravated felony, 101A43U, makes any attempt or conspiracy to commit any other aggravated felony an aggravated felony itself. But Congress expressly did not include solicitation with its conspiracy and attempt cousins at 101A43U, even though it has included solicitation in many other immigration provisions. And that's got to count for something. By the way, many circuits, including the 11th, have adopted a similar rationale. And I must note, the Honorable Paul C. Huck from the Southern District of Florida where I used to clerk was on this panel. He is a great judge, and the panel was lucky to have him. If you're listening, Judge Huck, then I've made it, and go Gators. And that is Cortez Maldonado v. Bar. Finally, we come to Mukulumbuto v. Barr, published by the Ninth Circuit on October 13, 2020. This case is about adverse credibility, and it arises out of the city I practice, San Diego, and it's quite the story. Mr. Mukulumbuto is an asylum seeker from the Democratic Republic of Congo. He claimed he worked as a driver in the capital Kinshasa for a politician and a critic of the government. In 2008, He and the politician were ambushed, and his politician employer was shot and killed. Mr. Mokulambuto fled to Angola for nine years, where he worked for a certain General Nagama for many years. But he fled to Brazil after the general sought revenge due to, quote, Mokulambuto's relationship to Nagama's niece, end quote. Sounds interesting. From Brazil, he came to the U.S., He applied for asylum at the border, and an immigration judge eventually denied it, finding him not credible. The BIA and then the Ninth Circuit affirmed, primarily by identifying inconsistencies between his two border interviews and in-court testimony. For example, Mr. Mukulambuto misstated his birth date three times, testified inconsistently as to what he did after the shooting in Kinshasa, and didn't tell border officers that he was stabbed in the leg during the attack as he testified during the hearing the ninth circuit also affirmed the ij's discounting of the affidavits submitted on mr mukulambuto's behalf because they were submitted by interested parties like family members and friends who were not subject to cross-examination because they were outside of the us the ninth circuit also rejected mr mukulambuto's unique due process claims based on errors in the immigration court transcripts and the ij's refusal to admit a favorable credible fear interview transcript because Mr. Mukulumbuto could not show prejudice, as is required to bring a due process claim. Mr. Mukulumbuto therefore, did not succeed in his case. One final observation. In this case, the Ninth Circuit held that it and the IJ could compare Mr. Mukulambuto's two border interview notes with his court testimony because, quote, the interviews were conducted under oath with contemporaneous notes containing the questions asked and transcribed either by a French-speaking officer or with the aid of an interpreter, end quote. To me, If any of those things are not present in other cases, an argument exists that a court cannot rely on the border interview. And that is Mukulambuto v. Barr. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend, and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgregg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review and send us a tweet at imreview. That's I-M-M-Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.